don't know if you remember the story of Deacon Philip. But you know, if you remember the story, he causes trouble almost from the beginning of the ministry of the church. It's not like he's trying to cause trouble. He just gets into trouble. Uh, he's just trying to be faithful to the mission, but he, he ends up in hard spots. We don't have any evidence that Philip is cantankerous or difficult. In fact, the evidence we have is just the opposite. When the apostles are getting caught up in feeding the widows, they realize they're spending all of time waiting tables, they say, we need some folks to help us do that. So the church goes in search of some folks who are filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and Philip is one of the guys they grab to begin to bring in to help organize the distribution of food to the widows. So the evidence we have in scripture is that he's wise, that he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and that he has distinguished himself above others. Philip is one of these folks. His compassion is a mild wide. He's a good organizer. He's willing to serve. But then as the story of uh, the work of the church continues, you know Stephen, who's one of the other folks who gets chosen to wait on the tables, is stoned. And by that we mean people throw stones at him until he's killed. And then there is great persecution of the church in Jerusalem, and Philip and others have to flee. They're, they're dispersed from Jerusalem to stay ahead of the persecution. Philip immediately goes to Samaria. That's an interesting choice to begin with. It's interesting because it's... It's the other side of the railroad tracks, for lack of a better expression. He goes to people who the rest of the Jewish community look down their noses at, okay? So when he's fleeing, he heads to the ghetto. He heads to the marginalized. It's kind of interesting. And then he encounters in that process a magician named Simon. It's a cool story which I will tell you later. But at the end of that story, in which Philip gets in more trouble, he is given a specific instruction from the Holy Spirit. And we read about it in the book of Acts, the eighth chapter, the 26th verse. In a lot of ways, Acts is the fifth gospel. The first four gospels are the gospels of Jesus Christ. And Acts is sort of the gospel of the work of the Holy Spirit through the church. And because it's a gospel, I'll invite you to stand for the reading. This is Acts 8, beginning in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Candace, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. 
Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture that the eunuch was reading. Isaiah, you'll recognize it. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news of Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Lord Jesus, by your spirit, give us wisdom to understand your word this day. Amen. You may be seated. So here we're dealing with an encounter between a guy riding in a wagon, that word chariot really could mean wagon or pulled cart, and Philip, who's just come from Samaria under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's important that we know who these folks are. When someone is described as an Ethiopian, there's a popular understanding of this day that really says an Ethiopian is from the furthest reaches of the world. It's like saying he's from Timbuktu. He's so far away from here. We're told he's a treasurer of the Ethiopian empire. What they tell me according to the history book I read was that at this time the ruler of Ethiopia was considered to be the descendant of the sun god and too holy to involve himself in the mundane ritual of actually ruling the kingdom. And so his mother did it. And his mother was called the Candace. Candace is the name for all those mothers of Ethiopian rulers who are too holy to stoop to mundane matters like ruling. And so this Ethiopian is in charge of the treasury of the Candace, who is the queen, essentially, who's ruling the nation of Ethiopia. You can imagine how strange the workings of that kind of government might be in Rome or Jerusalem. And we all know that strange and different or weird isn't good, right? I mean, especially when it comes to acceptance by others, strange isn't good. 
But we are told in this passage that the reason the Ethiopian is in Jerusalem is that he's come to worship there. So he's a devout, God-fearing, and God-seeking individual. And you say, well, how sincere was this guy? Is this just like a, a little trip, an excursion he's on? Or, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't worship of the Jewish God have been unusual for him? And you wonder, what did the Candace think of him traveling from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship when her son was supposedly the reincarnation of the sun god? I mean, that sounds like a precarious place to put yourself. And, and Ethiopia to Jerusalem, how far of a journey is that? Have you, have you considered that? I mean, how far do you have to travel to get from Ethiopia up to Jerusalem? If you could fly, it's about 1,600 miles. Okay, so from here, Havana is 1,400 miles. Houston, Texas is about 1,500 miles. San Juan, Puerto Rico is about 1,650 miles away. He couldn't fly, so there wasn't an as-the-bird-flies equivalent for him. And you remember his mode of transportation was 747? Oh, no. It was a wagon, maybe a chariot. He's traveling in a wagon for 1,600 miles one way. He's on the return trip. And, and having gotten to Jerusalem, and, and part of the story I always am curious about is how much does he know before he gets there? I mean, let's face it, this doesn't sound like, a, like an annual trip. It doesn't sound like you go multiple times. I mean, if you're going from Ethiopia, it's probably like once in a lifetime kind of a thing when you think about 1,600 miles by wagon. What, what's he expecting when he gets there? Is he expecting that when he arrives, he's not going to be admitted into the temple courtyards? Oh, he can get into the outer courtyard, which is for the Gentiles, but he's not Jewish, he's black. That's what it means to be Ethiopian. And you don't get into the inner courtyard with the Jews, you just wouldn't do it, you'd be killed. And he might get into the outer courtyard, except he's a eunuch, which means he's a surgically altered individual, transgendered, if you like. He's not allowed to go into the temple at all. And I'm wondering what's stirring in him when after driving 1,600 miles to go to the temple, he just can't get in. How, how does that make you feel? And I wonder, are you still reading the prophet Isaiah on the way home after you've experienced that? He is. So this guy is, is really a devout seeker after God. I mean, anyone who looked at him knew he wasn't a Jew. And yet somehow he is drawn to the worship of the God of Israel. We don't really know if he ever got into the temple or not. We just know that, well, 
it's not likely he would have been admitted. How do we deal with that kind of rejection? How do we deal with that kind of displacement today? When things don't go the way we expect them to go, do we continue to seek God and trust him? Or do we tend to sort of check out and just blame God whether the injustice was his fault or not? In any event, Philip hears the whisper of the Holy Spirit and he's told, hey, go over and get near to that chariot. Get near to that wagon. Listen, pay attention. And when he draws near, he hears the scriptures being read. And so he, he draws near, he listens, he hears the scriptures being read, and he volunteers to interpret. He simply asks the question, doesn't he? Do you understand what you're reading? Do you understand that? And the Ethiopian eunuch says, no. And Philip says, would you like a little help with that? And the guy says, yeah. And I'm wondering, how prepared are you for that conversation? I mean, we're the ones who have been given the ministry of reconciliation, right? You're God's plan for bringing the world to himself. You are the visible expression of Christ in the world. What are you going to say, or what are you going to do when the Holy Spirit says to you, go over to that chariot and stand near to it. Go over and listen. Go, go over to that co-worker's cubicle and stand there for a minute and listen to the conversation. Because there's an on-ramp opening up there. And if you're there and paying attention, you might just be able to bring the kind of interpretation, the kind of explanation, the kind of wisdom that this particular individual needs. Are, are you prepared for that kind of conversation? Philip is prepared. He starts with Isaiah and the passage of scripture, Isaiah 53. He tells the story of Jesus. The Ethiopian eunuch believes and then he asks the $64,000 question, the one that this whole story is leading up to. Is there anything to prevent me from being baptized? Is there anything to exclude me from the kingdom? You understand, he's just come from Jerusalem. He's just traveled 1,600 miles to go to the temple. And when he gets there, he can't get all the way in. He painfully understands the differences between him and the Jews who are in the inner court of the temple. He understands in detail all the reasons why he can't become a Jew. But when he hears the truth of Jesus, well, his question is simple, isn't it? Is there anything about me that prevents me from stepping into the kingdom? Anything. Something I did as a kid. 
something that was done to me as a kid, something about the way I'm born, something about the way my body is now, is anything about my race, anything about my intelligence, anything about my, my work in the Ethiopian court that seems to make me a servant of the sun god, the king of the Ethiopians? Is there anything about me that prevents me from stepping into the kingdom, and you know that the story ends, Philip and the eunuch are in the water, right? You're supposed to understand that the resounding answer to that question, the question that rings through the ages, is there anything that prevents any of us from being baptized? And the answer is no. No. When you accept Christ, when you say I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, the next step is you get wet. That's the very next thing that happens. Because baptism is the entry ritual into the kingdom of God, and it is available to every person on the planet because we know what Jesus said, whosoever will, he is not willing that any should perish. The very next step is entry into the kingdom of God. And then the Holy Spirit enters our lives and begins this amazing transformation process, this process that will not leave us as we are, but establishes us in a new direction, in a new life, in a new family, and takes us down the road to transformation to Christ-likeness. According to the work of the Holy Spirit. Now I wish... My life would be so much easier if I could do this. I wish that every time someone came into the kingdom, they would just check with me, and I could tell them exactly how to live after that. And I could just tell them, you know, here in the church, you can't do any of these things. You have to always do these things. This is how you have to act from here on out. I wish I had the authority somewhere in Scripture to do that. The problem is I don't. I'm sure I told you the story of a, a woman from one of my churches who came to me excited and said her neighbor asked about the church of the Nazarene in town. And she told that neighbor everything we don't do. And I said to her, did you think to mention Jesus? And it was like, oh, forgot about that. You see, when we're born into the kingdom of God, the Holy Spirit becomes the one who becomes the agent of our transformation. And he has an agenda for us. And he systematically takes us through that agenda, which is our transformation process. In that transformation process, we learn the wisdom of scripture. We get freedom to follow him. All kinds of things. We get born into this family who will give us advice and encouragement to stay on task with the Holy Spirit. But we in the church, we don't take on the job of the Holy Spirit. We're not the one who convicts others of sin. That's the Holy Spirit's job. We simply encourage everyone who steps into the kingdom to follow Jesus, to pay attention to what the scriptures say, to give themselves increasingly to God so that we can actually be his ambassadors in the world. Philip is in a position to be this ambassador because the Spirit has led him from Samaria where he's been proclaiming the good news of the gospel. And when he gets down to 
the intersection of his life and the Ethiopian eunuch. I believe the author of Acts, Luke, is saying to us by the inclusion of the story that entry into the kingdom of God requires belief in Jesus and not another blessed thing. He's answering for us the question, is our salvation belief and something else? Is it belief and this level of performance? Is it belief and this kind of external identity? Is it belief in these kinds of understandings or knowledge? Is it belief in a secret special knowledge that's only given to Christians? Or, or, or what is salvation? What, what's required to enter into the kingdom? It's, it's just faith in Jesus, a desire to follow him. We stand as the church at the entry door to the kingdom of God. We tell folks in the world what the conditions for entry are. Do we tell them with a warm embrace that whosoever may enter? Or do we start setting up conditions, reasons, why someone like them might not want to be here? The context of this story is that persecution began in Jerusalem and Stephen is stoned. And the first place Philip goes is the people who wouldn't be admitted. Right away, the trouble Philip gets into is because he's the agent of the Holy Spirit to break down every barrier that exists in humanity to keep people out of the kingdom so that everyone knows they're invited. As soon as this encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch is over, Philip's taken away. And if you read further on the passage, uh, you get a picture of what's happening. He turns up someplace else, and, and my transition of the scripture in verse 40 says this. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and as he was passing through the region, he proclaimed the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. You get the impression that wherever he was, whatever he was doing, well, sort of while he was at stop and shop buying his groceries, he was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. It's appropriate grammatically to read the verses in Matthew 28 that we typically translate, go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son of, and Holy Spirit. It's appropriate to render those words, in your going, make disciples. And the meaning is, not just go to make disciples, but everything you're doing in the meantime. This little journey, while you're on vacation, while you're sitting on the beach, while you're doing whatever you do. This story of the good news of Jesus Christ should just be percolating up from you. The gratitude that we have at being included in the kingdom should just continually be bubbling forth from us. The rejoicing that we do day after day in that we have been included should just be continually expressing itself. It just can't help but 
come out. In your going, make disciples. Every person you meet is a candidate for entry into the kingdom of God if they are not already in the door. And you are the visible expression of Christ in the world. Paul said, it's as if Christ were making his appeal through you. If you think about it, Philip really isn't actually one of the apostles, is he? I mean, he's one of the guys who got called to wait on tables. He's serving the widows. That's what he's selected for. So if you can imagine, you know, the job of your waitress at Red Robin is really to share the gospel with you, right? It's, it's that kind of a thing. In the discourse of your life, bear the kingdom of God. Philip was one of the bearers of the kingdom of God and he's now a member of that great cloud of witnesses that the Hebrews author tells us about that's surrounding us, cheering for us to complete the pathway that Christ has marked out for us. You may say to me, Pastor Dan, that task is too big for me. That's more than I can do. And I say, at one level, you're right. If left alone, it's too big for any of us to do. But we're invited to his table to receive his spiritual food, to be encouraged by the very presence of Jesus himself, the same spirit who spoke into Philip's ear and said, hey, go here and stand by that chariot. You know, it wasn't Philip's idea to go stand by the chariot didn't occur to him. It wasn't his strategy for bringing people into the kingdom. It was just pay attention to the leading of the Spirit and he will give you opportunity to talk about the joy that is yours and to explain from Scripture that Jesus is God and is inviting you into a new life. And so he feeds us and enables us to proclaim the new covenant in his blood. And so the resources are here for us to do what he calls us to do. So you're not on your own in this mission. You're simply asked whether you'll be faithful to the voice of the Spirit in your life. Jesus will make you able to do the tasks he calls you to do. Will you pay enough attention so that you can hear the assignment? Will you endeavor to walk closely enough to the Holy Spirit so that you can discern his leadership? Will you respond in obedience to what you hear? Will you appropriate the provision he gives you in order to fulfill the task? Those are your questions.
But this morning, we offer the table of the Lord, which reminds us both that he came, that he gave himself for us, he returned, and he is absolutely coming again. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we prepare to receive this communion meal again, may it strengthen us to serve you. May our lives create new entry ramps to the kingdom of God so that all who would choose to enter can by our work find it easy to enter, can find their way, can see in our lives examples of what it means to live in the kingdom of God. We pray this for your glory in the name of Christ. Amen. Would those who are going to assist us in serving communion come at this time? The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Gracious God, pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts, that in the breaking of this bread and the drinking of this juice, we may know the presence of the living Christ and be renewed as the body of Christ for the world, redeemed by Christ's blood. May your spirit sanctify us that we might be one, united in mission and committed to loving God and neighbor with all that we are. Amen. I'd invite you to stand and move towards the exterior part of the aisles. All who desire to follow Christ are welcome to come. Take the elements, eat them immediately, and then return to your seats by the central aisle. Heavenly Father, we recognize that we don't have it in ourselves to be your ministers of reconciliation. And our knees get a little weak when we hear that we're to be the visible expression of Christ in the world. And so we acknowledge that it will only be because of your enablement of us that we can be who you invite us to be. And so we open our hearts to your grace and say, Lord, make us the kind of gracious and compassionate people whose arms stretch wide enough to embrace the whole world. 
and enable us to do that to your glory. We thank you for this season of salvation. And we pray that our hearts will be filled with rejoicing that you included us. And now to him who is able to keep you from falling, but is able to present you before his throne with great joy, blameless. To him be glory in the church now and through all generations. Amen.